Welcome back to the show. I have a wonderful episode today. Uh, this is an episode I've been meaning to do for a while, but the timing just happened to be right. I was able to link up with Dr. Ryan Marino. Um, we'll jump right on into the episode. Uh, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, all that fun stuff. But this was one of the best conversations that I think we've had. And I think a really informative and really topical because we just had some great news with Narcan becoming over-the-counter approved just yesterday morning, you know, the, the morning that we recorded it. Um, so amazing, amazing. So check it out. Hope you guys learned something. Give us a like, comment, subscribe, all that fun stuff for more. And we've got plenty more interviews and fun episodes on the way. All right, everybody, welcome. We got a wonderful show on tap for today. We have a wonderful guest, somebody I've been meaning to talk to for a while. This is Dr. Ryan Marino. I'll let him introduce himself first, then we'll kind of jump on in. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, my name is Ryan Marino. I'm a medical toxicologist in emergency physician and addiction doc uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. All right, and you've become kind of like the expert around the world on fentanyl and other stuff. So we're going to talk about that. Um, but first question I wanted to ask you, um, could you please define the word woke? <laughs> um, it's a great question. So I believe the definition is the recognition of systemic injustices and a desire to change them. That sounds like a wonderful definition. Yeah. And it's like one of those things that like if you were an expert on such a situation, you'd be able to answer that question on a drop of a dime. <laughs> All right. So with that in knowledge, um, could you tell us what is fentanyl? What the F, WTF, WF, <laughs> WTF fentanyl, what that is? So fentanyl is an opioid. Um, so, I mean, it acts the same as like oxycodone, morphine, heroin, all of those things. And it's a, a pretty old drug. It was discovered back in the 60s um, and has been used medically since then. But uh, fentanyl it is better known today, I think, for the fact that it is in street drugs, the, the non-medical form, um, and is caused the primary driver of our, our overdose crisis in the United States. Yeah, and it's gotten a lot of attention all over the world for that reason, uh, more so than anything else. So we're both addiction docs. Um, that's one of the things that, like, again, one of the reasons I started following you, like, on Twitter and all the socials, because I was like, oh, here's a, a fellow addiction doc. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of us out there, not no. enough of us out there. Yeah. And it's something that, like, we, we need more and more of. And I was like, all right, let's, let's talk. And this guy was, you know, spinning a lot of good stuff. So I was like, let's make sure to get Ryan on the show. But the reason I reached out, you know, recently when I did was, you know, I was on a panel recently. Um, you know, in, in Northern Virginia, there was a kid in Arlington High School. Um, you know, unfortunately, he had a overdose and died. And I was invited to be on this panel to talk to the community. And there were all these people that were on there. There were people, community leaders and teachers and parents. And um, and then they invited DE agents. So we're in Arlington. We're outside of DC. Um, so we have, you know, Arlington police and we have DEA people. And we're sitting out there on the panel. And then 
all I'm hearing is this lie after lie after lie and misinformation and all this stuff that's out there. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm sitting on stage and I'm just like my jaws on the floor because of all the terrible stuff, the wrong stuff that's out there. And people in the audience are just buying it, right? They have, they have nothing else to kind of go against what's there. So I was like, let me, you know, you know, I, I tweeted you in response to this. I was like, what is going on with you? Know, is, can, can dogs over, you know, is this, you know, we're not training dogs because they're overdosing, like all these things. I was just like, oh, we, we have to, we have to sit down and talk. So let's, let's talk a little bit about like, I mean, how you came into this field, what, what brought you into this kind of molecule, this, this compound specifically, this drug, and then like, let's kind of go into that. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think that's a fair question. My kind of like medical training uh, was in the like early 2010s in um, Western Pennsylvania. And so that was very hard hit early on by kind of the like opioid epidemic, quote unquote, um, and fentanyl. And so, I mean, I remember in like emergency medicine residency, we would have 10 hour shifts uh, and I would see at least uh, like one or two overdoses a, a day. And a lot of times I was seeing people come in, I mean, more, more than once in, in the same 10 hour span. Um, and then, I mean, I went on to do toxicology and a lot of our patients were, were overdosing on these drugs, were having kind of problems related to, to the drugs that were um, like fentanyl that were showing up. I mean, it was primarily fentanyl. For a while, we had a lot of very bizarre uh, fentanyl analogs and the, these other synthetic opioids that thankfully I think have mostly kind of disappeared at this point, um, at least until until something changes here. But so that was a, a big part of things. And also, I mean, just seeing kind of like people in, in my own life, people who mattered to me being affected by fentanyl and, and losing, I mean, people who were very close and, and important to me. Um, but in terms of the, the fentanyl myths, I mean, that was something I remember seeing the, these first start to pop up in news stories. I think there was one where like a someone in East Liverpool, Ohio, actually had said that they touched some white powder and their body shut down. Um, and so it was kind of comical, honestly, not not to say that like someone's symptoms are, are funny, but the fact that this is just totally impossible and improbable. Um, but I remember that it stopped being funny when I actually saw someone who was experiencing an overdose and, and needed to be resuscitated and people were not going to resuscitate them because they were worried about secondhand exposure to fentanyl. Um, and so that, I mean, was kind of a, a big, big change in, in the way I think about these things. And I mean, unfortunately, I've seen that happen more times than I can count. And this myth has now kind of spiraled out of control where it seems like more people believe it than, than not. It's almost it's the, the cat's out of the bag at this point. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that was really drew me to like again to your work as a whole was like, yeah, you know, all, there's so many myths that are out there, and I think it's really important that like we we look at it and say that like you know, fentanyl has dangers, right? It's, we're not trying to invalidate what it can do, but at the same time, it's like it's not quite the boogeyman that it's being made out to be. So it's it's trying to find that balance, and I think what we see a lot of times in social media news outlets the world as a whole is like the inability to kind of have this this kind of gray thinking right we're, we're so much in this as black and white of like well it's it's a terrible thing and it must be banned and you know we see these people like the the, the legislatures congress people were like well we have to ban fentanyl from the world and it's like 
you know, we, we, we put fentanyl into a lollipop for pain patients, right? And <laughs> finding that balance. Yeah. And I think, I mean, too, one of the issues is, like, as you said, there's very few addiction specialists in the country and the world, honestly. But in terms of kind of like public drug knowledge, it, it's so poor, especially in this country. And the authority figures on the topic are spreading misinformation. And at the end of the day, the misinformation is not just hurting like the person who's overdosing on fentanyl, who's not getting resuscitated, it's, it's hurting everybody. Um, and I think most people don't realize the kind of broader implications that this has. Yeah. When, when we're talking about, you know, fentanyl and all this other stuff that's out there, you know, kind of bringing it back a little bit, like, so toxicology is the first part, right? That's your, your specialty is toxicology. Tell us a little bit about toxicology. Cause it's, I'm just, you know, I think in my position, I understand what it is, but for people who may not know, it's not just, you're not just a fentanyl person, right? There's other stuff that's involved with what toxicology is. Yeah. So medical toxicology, I think is even more niche and, and rare than addiction if that's possible. But, uh, there's very few of us. And I think most people don't really know what we do. Um, and it, it's quite a broad variety of things. So the like quote would be that we manage the poisoned patient. Um, this doesn't mean someone who was maliciously poisoned with cyanide or something. This is someone who maybe was taking the wrong dosage of their medication, someone who has been envenomated, someone who used fentanyl, um, and had an overdose. Uh, but also, I mean, things like varying from plants and radiation to kind of medication errors and, and toxicity from that as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's that obviously that overlap that comes along with, with psychiatry in regards to, you know, unfortunately, people in psychiatry will find ways to poison themselves and whether intentionally, unintentionally, and then it kind of spills over to there. So one of the questions that we got out there was, the difference between, so we kind of referenced it, right? So there's, there is medical fentanyl. It's been around for decades. What's the difference between that and the stuff that's out in the drug supply nowadays? So that's a good question. And I think most people think of them kind of as vastly different. Uh, but at the end of the day, fentanyl is a molecule. So the fentanyl that's on the street that people are overdosing and, and having problems from is the same fentanyl as we use medically. Um, obviously, it's not coming from a pharmaceutical industry. It's not necessarily pure, um, those kind of things. But, but the biggest difference is that people don't know the dose that they're getting. And so it's almost impossible to do any sort of dosing of a drug that you're buying on the black market um, for a lot of reasons. But uh, especially when fentanyl, I mean, first showed up and when these other fentanyl analogs showed up, uh, people were not even expecting fentanyl. And so when you are using like a certain amount of heroin every day and the next day you get double the dose in the form of fentanyl, uh, that is what makes people overdose. And we're still seeing a lot of that because fentanyl is contaminating other drugs and because uh, the kind of restrictive criminalization drug war policies have been so effective at reducing the supply of other drugs that even things people are buying on the street like Xanax or Adderall um, end up just being fentanyl now and people are dying. Uh, and so, I mean, like there was some college kids in, at Ohio State last year tried buying Adderall for finals and it was just fentanyl and they died. Um, and that's really the problem. And so I think people have a tendency to demonize fentanyl because it's causing all of these problems, but we use it medically 
ubiquitously. It's like one of the most used medicines I can think of, uh, at least in the top 10. Um, it's used 24 seven every single day in, in every medical center in the country, if not around the world. Um, and is very, very valuable and is used safely without complications. Yeah. And I think I had a, I think a surgery a couple of years ago and I was just looking at my records afterwards, of course, because we all snoop and look at our own medical records. And I saw that like I'd gotten fentanyl, I think as part of like the anesthesia or whatever it was. And it was just like, I'm still here a couple couple years later i i didn't die from having that injected into my body so it's it's again that understanding that there is a difference between these things and, and the dosing and the dosing is the matter is and if you don't know it then if you don't know the dosing that's where the danger kind of comes from yeah and even so like when i'm in the emergency room people will come in with with horrible injuries and, and other painful things and fentanyl i mean is one of the most uh the best uh and safest pain medicines that we have for a lot of things and people will turn it down because all they know is that this is a deadly drug. This is what, what's killing people on the street. Um, and so that I think is, it really does do a disservice, not only to kind of like the practice of medicine, but people are, are suffering in pain because they're scared to get, get pain medicine. So in that situation, like, well, I mean, just out of my own curiosity, what do you, what do you kind of do with that? Then you switch to like some of the other opioids or whatever else, whatever else that might be. Well, I usually try to have kind of a conversation about it and see what's really going on. Um, I do have to say a lot of times when someone is that strongly opposed to fentanyl right off the bat, um, it, it can be very hard to, to change their mind. And so uh, using other stuff, but fentanyl is so much more preferred to agents. I mean, even like morphine, which is, is a great pain medicine, but has so many side effects. Uh, and fentanyl, when it, it's used safely and, and dosed, in a known fashion, I mean, has like almost no side effects. Uh, it's a, a great, great drug. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, one of the other, the myths that we were hearing um, up on the stage is that, you know, that the Chinese are manufacturing the fentanyl and they're shipping it over to the Mexicans who are driving it across the border. And it's this kind of great propaganda to disrupt American lives and kill, kill Americans through the drug trade. Where did, you know, I have my own hypothesis of where this kind of stuff came from, but what are, what are some of your thoughts on, on the DEA's message to my, to my peoples? Yeah, that, those conversations, I mean, are really rooted in kind of ugly stuff, I think. The fentanyl that is coming into the country, I mean, initially was coming primarily from China. The Chinese government actually did a really great job shutting that all down. But the precursor products still come from places like China and then are manufactured into fentanyl in Mexico and brought into the United States. Um, the problem with that is that the demand for fentanyl comes from Americans. And most of the fentanyl that enters the country, even from our southern border, is brought in by Americans who are transporting it from Mexico. This is not like some sort of malicious thing. These countries are, there are drug cartels who are meeting the demand that Americans have for the drugs. Um, a lot of fentanyl is produced domestically. And I mean, the more we kind of restrict access to uh, international uh, or foreign fentanyl coming in, more and more people are making it domestically. And making fentanyl is really not hard at all. And so you don't really need much knowledge um, and it's not difficult to obtain kind of the supplies to make it. People can literally make it in like a, one of those plastic buckets from Home Depot. And so 
I think that is just kind of a distraction um, and seems to be rooted in kind of like xenophobia and racism because at the end of the day, blaming other nationalities um, doesn't do anything to help this problem and is just encouraging uh, more American production of fentanyl, which I'm assuming is not the intention these people have who, who put that argument forward, but that is what they're doing. Yeah, and that's what my thoughts are on too, is that it is the, the xenophobia, the racism that's involved with this kind of stuff, which causes a lot of problems because it, again, you know, if we're not able to identify that like, hey, Americans are the ones who are buying this, Americans are the ones that are bringing this stuff in, like, you know, we can't really police that even. We can't even stop the problem if we're not looking at the right people to look for. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for like drug overdoses and drugs in general, people always want to blame someone. Like if you, if you lose a loved one, if, if your child overdoses on drugs, you never want to think they, they did this. Um, they, they were just using drugs. So it's very easy to look for someone to blame and try to scapegoat even groups of people. Uh, and that's kind of a thematic element across these discussions. It's not even just the kind of foreign policy. Yeah, and I think, yeah, we're always, even in general, right, and we're always looking for, for the other instead of being able to look look within and see what could we have done or what could the other person they have done a little bit differently. So, okay. So kind of coming back to some of the truths that are out there. So, we, you know, I think when we look at the, there, I think we've all seen kind of the, the charts of the waves of opioid deaths um, that's been out there, put out like CDC, I think, has put out these charts. Um, 2013 is always kind of seen as the the rise, the onset of when fentanyl really came onto the scene and really you see this massive spike in deaths that are out there. What what kind of led, do you feel, to the proliferation of it into the supply and then its kind of omnipresence into everything? What, you know, tell me a little, talk about that a little bit. So that is a really fascinating discussion. And I mean, I don't think anyone has an exact or precise answer. I certainly have a lot of theories. But the number one driver of this was the very successful war on heroin. Um, and so heroin rates had risen in the 90s and 2000s. Um, and there's a lot of theories about what was going on there, uh, kind of like socioeconomic, foreign uh, policy kind of despair. Uh, things are not are not going great in the world and have not been going great for probably the last 20 years or so. Um, so that's a whole nother conversation. But the United States worked very effectively to destroy the opium supply in the world. And so a big part of that was in Afghanistan and in that region. Um, and then there was a lot of poppy fields in northern Mexico as well. And so heroin had to be made from poppy plants. So you have to grow, cultivate these poppies in the right climate. You have to have a lot of land. I mean, it's not, not an easy thing um, that can be done anywhere by anyone. And so with that out of the picture, there was still demand for opioids. They, this kind of like supply and demand 101, um, they took away the supply without addressing the demand in any meaningful way. And so it logically followed that fentanyl, which can be made pretty much anywhere very easily, you don't need any sort of like large, warm uh, geographical area to do this. And so it can be done much more clandestine, um, can even be transported like through the mail because it's so much more potent and in such smaller form. Um, and so 
the the criminalization and the the war on heroin actually drove the introduction of fentanyl and now fentanyl is like for all intents and purposes i mean the the only drug i feel on the streets and that too i mean gets into this cool idea well not cool i guess but um this theory of the iron law of prohibition where the more you try to prohibit things you drive people to more and more like bizarre and unsafe substances uh, more potent things and i mean we've seen this in a lot of different areas alcohol prohibition i mean was was a tremendous failure but even like cannabis thc um, thinking back to 10 years ago or even fewer than that i mean i remember seeing uh, people experiencing problems from the synthetic cannabinoids that were trying to circumvent our laws against cannabis people were buying these weird compounds that had effects totally dissimilar from what you would get from like regular thc um, and ending up quite sick and ever since, I mean, the 2018 Farm Bill, where now Delta 8, Delta 10, and even Delta 9, the just regular THC, are pretty widely available. Many states have decriminalized and legalized. I never see synthetic cannabinoid toxicity anymore. So I think it's just kind of interesting to think about how we force people into these these other kind of worse things just because we don't accept drug use. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I remember from, you know, residency as an intern, psych intern, one of the most psychotic people that I ever saw was somebody back in 2012, 13, like K2 spice was, was really rampant around that time. And that's when you're starting to see again, these people, no problems before, then they come in floridly psychotic, like off the wall, psychotic, like, like seem like they would be decades of schizophrenic but like 20 something years old people and you're just like what is what is kind of going on their aggression the wildly aggressive um and just really scary and you're like well, you know we're all kind of scared about the k2 and spice were the big ones the synthetic cannabinoids at that time so yeah and then i think it was really interesting too about talking about you know the war in afghanistan right i think that was one of those things that people weren't talking about so much, right? Um, the whole opium aspect, right? I, I have a, you know, I'm doing my, my Substance Saturdays on Twitter and, and, and Instagram where I've talked about opium recently and Afghanistan's number one export was opium um, for decades, right? It's been, it's been a huge thing for the, for the poppy season, opium that's come from there. And it's one of those things that, you know, you're not watching it on the nightly news that like this is the thing, one of the things that they were, going after in the wartime was was that whole aspect of things yeah and the taliban i mean was profiting off of the sale of opium but i think at some point it was 25 percent or maybe even more of the world supply of opium was coming just from afghanistan i think like 40 percent. i think is what i the last thing i saw was like from afghanistan and yeah i remember doing like a paper back in college and like about uh, it was my Islam class about how the Taliban is an un-Islamic organization because of how they're totally funded by by the opium and drug trade. So I was like, I was like, screw these guys. These guys are you know giving me a bad name as a Muslim and just a, a little extra. So yeah, this is stuff that's been there for again many 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 years. So yeah, and talking about that again. So like uh, not that aspect about like you know we we criminalize and then we kind of we find these terrible things so right so the can cannabis is a huge thing the delta eight um but that's 
again, another huge thing is we, we, we dive into these things that we don't know and then we have these unintended, unintended kind of consequences that occur. And I mean, seeing the way that fentanyl is being treated now, like obviously fentanyl is causing problems. I don't think anyone could ever deny that. Um, and even like when it comes to THC, no one would ever say that like using THC is safe per se. Um, but obviously like having uh, regulated cannabis is better than people buying spice and K2 at like head shops and gas stations and ending up running down the highway naked, um, which I'm sure wasn't the effect that they would want anyway. Uh, but seeing kind of how this big push against fentanyl now, um, seeing things like nitazines showing up in the drug supply, xylazine, um, all of these other new things that are, are more difficult to treat are weirder, again, kind of like getting further and further away from what people even want when they're using drugs. Um, it's, it's really just ending up hurting people. And it, I reference probably way too often but the children's book the old lady who swallowed the fly and so she swallowed the fly and then swallowed something else to try to eat the fly and it ended up in the end like swallowing a horse because she that was the way she was trying to treat all of these things and that's kind of how i feel our drug policy is that instead of just doing the right thing from the beginning we're chasing our tails with all of these kind of ridiculous measures yeah and the aspect where also where, you know, you talked about how it's everywhere and then now there's kind of like myths that go along with that too. You know, one of the most common ones that we're hearing, you know, again, the DA agents and the Arlington police putting out there that it's in, it's in the marijuana, it's in the cannabis and stuff like that. And we both know, I think that it's not, doesn't make sense. It's not possible, but for people who may be listening who may be like, why is that not make sense because it'll just make the cannabis more addictive. Tell us a little bit about why that's not feasible. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing people should know is in any of these kind of stories, like be skeptical, ask for proof. And so even though the DEA is kind of our like drug authority at the federal level, they are putting out unverified misinformation all the time. And at this point, I mean, I have to kind of assume that they have not good intentions because they aren't trying to do any better. Um, but when it comes to things like putting fentanyl into marijuana, which is, is not just from the DEA, that's coming from a lot of other places, uh, it doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons. I mean, first and foremost, economically, that's giving away free drugs like fentanyl isn't necessarily cheap. Um, putting it in, in someone's cannabis without them knowing about it or paying for it doesn't really make sense as like a business person selling drugs. Um, also, I mean, if someone were to get fentanyl when they didn't want fentanyl, uh, especially if they wanted like a marijuana is a very different effect than opioids, I, I can't imagine that that would be very good for business either. Um, but the main thing at the end of the day is just kind of like based on the laws of chemistry and physics, the way cannabis flour is consumed, um, it makes it almost impossible that even if someone were to maliciously lace fentanyl into the, the plant product, um, it would just be combusted and there would be no significant effect from it. No one would overdose on the fentanyl because it breaks down at such low temperatures that the way people smoke cannabis is very different than the way people would like vaporize opioids like fentanyl. Yeah. So it just doesn't work. Yeah. And well, so sure, but... people do s smoke fentanyl, but smoke should be like in, in quotation marks because it's a totally different process. It is more of a vaporization 
at much lower temperatures and with kind of very much intentionality rather than sort of accidentally smoking it in, in something else. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like one of the terminology wise, a lot of people need to understand is there's differences between vaporizing and inhalation, smoking and all these things is they all mean different things, combustion and et, et cetera. So, yeah. And it's, it's troubling, I think, to think that the DEA, who is our federal drug agency, they get billions of dollars a year to craft drug policy, and they're supposed to be protecting American citizens from the harmful effects of drugs. They don't even know the basic science of how drugs work, how fentanyl works, which is something that's been killing, I mean, tens of thousands of Americans a year for the past decade. Uh, that, I think, should be really disturbing, because why are we throwing our, our tax dollars at them to not even try um, or not to speculate here, but maybe do this intentionally? Yeah. The other part, see, the other kind of like thing that's we see these, we're seeing all these videos all the time, right? People who are, again, the cops who are overdosing, quote unquote, when they touch, you know, the dollar bills or all this other stuff. You know, and I think I've speculated and I think we've all kind of said, like, people are having panic attacks. Um, why, for people who may not be aware, why is that not a thing? Why can people not touch a dollar bill of fentanyl and die? And why can they, someone can do a, a sneak attack of fentanyl dust and not <laughs> inhale it and die? Like, why are these things just not physically possible? Yeah, so fentanyl, I mean, because it's an old drug, it's used so often, we actually know so much about how it behaves in relation to kind of human bodies. And so it does not absorb through the skin in any meaningful uh, or fast or effective way. And I think people know that there is a transdermal like skin patch preparation. And so that kind of plants this like kernel of truth uh, that fentanyl could absorb through your skin. But the patch kind of really actually illustrates how bad fentanyl is at absorbing through skin because this is the pharmaceutical industry got paid for the, the top minds in, in chemistry and pharmacology, spent millions of dollars over decades, and a fentanyl patch cannot deliver a therapeutic dose in under 12 hours. Um, so you have to have it sticking on your skin, and that is the best case scenario. So touching dry powder an overdose scene at a traffic stop, anything like that, is none of it is going to be absorbed. Um, you you really have to kind of try try very hard. Um, there's no way to accidentally get it through your skin. And the same thing goes for inhalational. People can snort fentanyl, um, but it doesn't just get into the air. It doesn't aerosolize, and um, it actually has a very low vapor pressure. Not to like get, get back into physics here. But low vapor pressure means that under earthly conditions, fentanyl is not just going to aerosolize into the air. You cannot just breathe it in unless you are intentionally inhaling or snorting um, like large quantities of this powder. I think I was reading like you have to be like in a fentanyl wind, wind tunnel essentially for <laughs> a couple of hours. And it's not just even like you just, oh, you're just in passing and you go through this wind tunnel and then this mythic, this mythical fentanyl wind tunnel like and then you're oh my god you've overdosed like you have to be standing there for a couple hours to get enough of it to, yeah. to have any significant effect and you'd need like a million dollars of fentanyl powder in front of you in the wind tunnel <laughs> this is not the ten dollar twenty dollar bag that you would buy on the street um and i think 
this part of the, that myth too has like a, a little grain of truth that a lot of people know about um, because there was this like siege in Moscow back in the early 2000s and nobody knows what agent the Russians used to take out um, all of these people who were holding hostages, but a bunch of the hostages also ended up dying. So it wasn't a great agent, whatever they used. Um, but days later, for some of the people who left the country and survived, when their clothing was tested in the UK, it tested positive for a couple of fentanyl analogs. I think it was carfentanil and remifentanil. And the Russians have actually said that that was not the only agent that was used. They've never said what was used. And this has never been able to be replicated. I mean, the Department of Defense has studied uh, weaponizing opioids, has attempted to weaponize opioids. Uh, if it was possible to weaponize fentanyl, the, the United States would be using it as a weapon, um, I can, can assure you. They'll, they'll find a way. <laughs> what, would be, what would be the benefit of, again, like DEA or other organizations, law enforcement, putting this out there like what what's the benefit of this what what do they gain from it well i hate to kind of speculate in like a conspiratorial manner but at the end of the day these kind of myths increase the funding for law enforcement if you say that fentanyl is this dangerous substance people are giving it out to trick-or-treaters um, that kind of thing the dea is going to get more money more people are going to want them involved want them to have more agents want to do more with the border um, all of that stuff and if even like local law enforcement agencies are saying that they're encountering this um, they're having to call in hazmat teams they're having to send their officers to the emergency room giving their dogs narcan all of those things i mean they're going to ask for increases in their budget to pay for those things which are all totally unnecessary and based in kind of denial of scientific reality um, so I don't know if that, if it, it really is a malicious intent. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of these policies seem to be designed to make, uh, like law enforcement and criminalization seem like the only option in treating this, uh, when we know that, that that's not the case. Yeah. I think I was reading, you know, when, when the dog situation came up and the guy was like, well, we can't use dogs to find fentanyl because they die from overdosing on sniffing. And I was like, this falls, first of all. Um, and I'll let you kind of explain that a little bit more too in a minute. But like, I think I was reading somewhere the training is like 20 or $30,000 for, for each dog. And I was like, you just kind of crunch the numbers exactly, right? And you kind of see what, what can be asked for budget-wise when you're, when you're doing this stuff. Yeah. The dog thing is interesting because I think, again, not to like be a conspiracy theorist here, but I feel like people are maybe no longer buying these other like casual contact overdoses and not really giving into it anymore. Um, but everyone feels bad if, if a dog gets hurt. Um, and particularly the people who, uh, well, not to stereotype here, but you know who is going to care if like a golden retriever is having a fentanyl overdose. Um, and so it, it is not happening. Like there are no documented cases of this. The dogs would have to eat a large quantity of fentanyl and presumably these are trained uh, dogs and they have like a, a handler with them at all times who could stop that from happening. But even a dog putting its wet nose into fentanyl is not going to absorb a clinically significant amount. 
and dogs actually have a, a much higher tolerance for fentanyl than humans. Um, it's interesting because fentanyl is like one of the pain medicines that works in, in veterinary medicine for dogs. Um, and I'm not a vet, so I don't, if I'm saying anything stupid, I apologize to the, the vets out there. But I, I don't think there are really many other medicines. And so this is used pretty ubiquitously in veterinary medicine for dogs um, as well. But they need a dose that would be 10 times the dose you would give a human. Um, so like the post-surgery dose of fentanyl for your dog might be the same as the dose you would have had, um, even if your dog is one-tenth of your size. Yeah. So it's another kind of like myth that's out there that's put out there and scary, but not true. Do you feel, I know like we're talking about conspiracy stuff and I, you know, I, I have no reason to believe that it's not these kind of ideas, right? That it's not these kind of conspiracy-ish kind of things, but do you feel like there's a deflection from kind of maybe their own failures, DA law enforcement kind of own failures, not being able to get the job done or almost, or do you feel like it's ignorance or anything else or? I think it's probably a combination of things. Um, I mean, when it comes to like DEA and law enforcement response to drugs, obviously like all they have is criminalization as their kind of toolkit here. And that is, is doesn't work. Um, but to justify their own existence, they can't say that like they should, the DEA should be replaced by a medical organization to make these kind of decisions. Um, I mean, that, that would not be in their own interest. And I think too, I mean, trying to kind of not necessarily, I don't want to say that they're creating problems, but it seems like a lot of these policies create a new problem where then the option that's presented is, oh, we need more law enforcement. We need more criminalization. Uh, oh, the, no one has access to Adderall anymore and meth rates are skyrocketing. So you should probably hire a hundred more DEA agents um, when the DEA is the ones who engineered the Adderall shortage in the first place. Um, so it's hard at the end of the day to see all of that happening and not connect those dots and be like very suspicious, um, especially when it comes to billions and billions of dollars and kind of future sus sustaining this organization and these policies um, to come out and say like, oh no, we've been wrong the whole time. Uh, I just don't ever see them doing that, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it was, it was another one of those things where I went to some different panel a few years ago and again, 10 ish something people, the sheriff of Loudoun County and X, Y, and Z, all these people were talking about what they're doing to combat the opioid epidemic again, blah, blah, blah. And 10 people talking, one of them I think was an ER doc or something like that as well. And nobody, not one of them, I think, talked about treatment, medical treatment. It was all about like, well, we're, we've developing this technology to find where the dealers are and where the hotspots are and X, Y, and Z, and we're going to make these arrests and this is how we're going to stop this. Not a single person said anything about what's been shown to be over and over again, like the most effective treatment for this, which is MAT, medication assisted treatment or medication for opioid use disorder. Where do you think this kind of hesitancy again comes from, like with, with this or with even the discussion of Narcan, and we'll get into Narcan in a little bit, but like, you know, buprenorphine, Suboxone, Narcan, the medical stuff that works, where is that situation coming from? That's a good question. I mean, I think um, 
it isn't just like DEA and, and law enforcement trying to increase criminalization and that kind of thing. This really is a societal problem. And our society is very much based in kind of like puritanical concepts, I would say, still at this point. And drug use in particular, I think, is one of the glaring examples of this, um, where we have a law on the books in the United States, a federal law from 1914 that was based on disgustingly racist grandstanding in Congress um, that criminalizes the medical treatment of addiction or drug use. And so other countries around the world can give people medical heroin um, so that they can use the opioids that they would want to use safely. They don't have to go out and buy God knows what on the street and, and end up dying. Um, but like that is where we are. And I think people to this day in almost every discussion I have, people tell me like, why doesn't someone just stop using drugs? Um, like the, the risk of overdose should be enough to stop someone when we know that people are always going to use substances. People are always going to use drugs. Um, and this idea that like death is the deterrent obviously doesn't work because we've lost how, how many at this point. Um, so I don't know. I think we need kind of like a, a cultural reset, honestly, and just to have more discussions. And so I try all the time to, and people probably find me very obnoxious for this very reason, but having like conversations about drug use and just normalizing that. And so I am not necessarily like using fentanyl, but having conversations with everyone because someone you know in your life is probably using fentanyl. Um, and if the only thing that you talk about is like how you think that that's a terrible decision and those people are throwing their lives away or whatever, um, that person is never going to come forward and, and be honest with you. And also they're more likely to try to hide their use and use in unsafe ways. And the reason people overdose and die at such high rates is because people are using like alone in their basement, in a car, in a back alley, that kind of thing. Um, nobody should die from an opioid overdose in 2023. And so, I mean, I would be much, I would much rather have someone tell me that they wanted to use drugs and I could be around or, or help them make sure that it was safe rather than finding out later that they died all alone. Um, and it was something that was totally preventable and never needed to happen. Yeah. Which is the basic kind of tenets of, you know, the idea that I think that we're both very fond of is harm reduction, right? Which is we harm reduction in a nutshell is saying, trying to stop people from dying from using drugs versus again, everything that you talked about, you know, we, we know that a lot of people get in trouble from using alone. Again, during COVID, we had isolation and a lot of people who were used together, forced to kind of use alone. And that's where the problems came from, um, not being able to access the help when it was necessary or available potentially. So with, um, even with Narcan, so again, so for people who may not be familiar, tell us a little bit about Narcan. And I know we have some, some good news that came out just this morning so we'll, we'll talk about that a little <laughs> it bit it's great news so narcan is the one of the brands that for naloxone um which is the opioid overdose antidote um and so narcan is the nasal spray in particular and so this was naloxone itself is a very old drug it was developed i think in discovered in the 70s or fda approved back in the 70s um and so has been around for a long time is a, a safe wonderful drug 
in terms of kind of antidotes that exist, like from a toxicology perspective, it's one of the only true antidotes in my opinion. Um, and also is kind of the closest thing to a real life miracle that I've ever seen, uh, like literally bringing someone back from the dead. But the Narcan nasal spray is cool because there was a big push to develop a uh, form of this that the lay public could use rather than kind of IV naloxone in the medical setting that had been around for a long time. Um, and it was actually publicly funded, which is interesting enough, U.S. Uh, more weird U.S. policies, um, because that then went to a private patent. But um, they developed this nasal atomizer spray so that even an untrained child could use it. And in kind of studying uh, people's use of this, more than 90% of people who have no training in Narcan can effectively administer this. Um, and so today it was approved to be over the counter for the first time by the FDA. And so, I mean, I think this is just one step in trying to get Narcan everywhere. Um, and so, I mean, I said before that nobody should die from an opioid overdose in 2023, and that's because we have a reversal agent. You can literally just undo the overdose. Um, so if Narcan is available everywhere, if people carry it, then the chances of people dying when they're far away from medical care, where most of the overdoses happen, uh, is going to be lessened. And so, I mean, I keep it in my car, in my bag, in my house. I have Narcan coming out of my ears, probably. Um, but I'm excited for this today. I mean, I think this normalizes it and reduces a little bit of the stigma because I think people still are hesitant to go to a pharmacy, even with a standing order in place where you don't need a prescription, to ask for Narcan to have it run through your insurance um, and kind of all of the associated stigma with that. So hopefully that, that breaks it down. But I mean, the more people who have Narcan, who advertise the fact that they have Narcan, if we keep it everywhere, um, I think that that's great. And this has come up a lot recently. I'm sure you have heard these discussions too, like keeping Narcan in schools. And so we've seen a lot of adolescents, teenagers, and young kids overdosing on fentanyl just because fentanyl is in everything. Um, and the alternative is that kids are dying in schools and people will still argue against having Narcan there because they think it enables drug use. And like superficially at the end of the day, I guess, if you save someone's life, the chance that they can go on and use drugs is higher than if they die. Um, but that is also a pretty morbid uh, way to justify that. And so the alternative literally is death and no one is going to recover, stop using drugs, go on to do anything if, if they're dead. Yeah. And I think I, part of like a presentation, I don't know, a few years ago, I listed like all these sheriffs and governors and Congress people who are kind of saying exactly what you're saying is that like, Oh, it's just enabling them to do it again. We might as well just give them, you know, put another needle in their arm if we're allowing them to have Narcan. It's like, well, you're not even giving them a chance then to, make a different choice if you if they die right because that's that's what the alternative is 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 death right where it's it's it that and it becomes very black and white it's the life or death in that situation so yeah and then yeah like with the school situation too like somebody had asked me i think at the panels like why why isn't it in the first aid kits already why isn't it there is because you know yesterday it was a prescription drug uh, and you needed to have a medical order. You needed to have a name attached to it to have to have it in the first aid kits. But now that it's over the counter, it becomes just like Tylenol, Advil, or a Band-Aid. It's, it's there and readily available for anybody and everybody to use 
when the emergency occurs because we know the emergency will occur. It has been happening. So. Yeah. And there was this unfortunate, um, very publicized study, uh, and I use the word study kind of loosely because it had not made it through the peer review process and was significantly flawed. Um, they came out of a number of years ago that got a ton of national and international attention. This was like headline news from every outlet that alleged that naloxone increased drug use and having naloxone available actually increased fentanyl use. And so, I mean, I think that did irreparable damage. Um, these authors kind of shamelessly promoted this flawed and unpeer-reviewed uh, study for their own personal interest. Um, and the result that ended up making it to publication after the peer review process actually said the exact opposite. Um, to my knowledge, neither of the authors have ever addressed that or apologized for the damage that they did. Um, but that is kind of like the world that we live in. You get this headline, Narcan increases fentanyl use, and that's what people remember. They don't see the follow-up. They don't notice that three years later, this paper finally made it through the process and it has been totally edited to say the exact opposite of what the initial claim was. Um, and the same thing goes for like the fentanyl exposure myths. It's a huge story when the, the sheriff's deputy goes down and there's the dramatic video, uh, but no one pays attention days or weeks later when the follow-up is that there was no fentanyl involved at all. Yeah. It's always, you know, how can we grab the attention and hold on to it, right? So yeah. With, um, you know, part of what comes around with these other additives that have come in there, I know there's been talk about like, oh, we have... Narcan resistant, naloxone resistant fentanyl out there. Talk about that a little bit. So that is an interesting, um, like concept phenomenon, whatever. And it does seem to be, there's a big push from pharmaceutical industry, um, to market these like high dose, uh, opioid antagonists. So like much higher doses of naloxone or even new, more potent, well, not necessarily new, but repurposed, more potent, longer-lasting opioid antagonists that would function essentially the same as Narcan. At the end of the day, there is no opioid that is known that is resistant to naloxone, and even the ones that we call like elephant tranquilizers, the carfentanil that's a million times more potent than morphine, will respond to pretty standard doses of naloxone. And so I actually had someone a few years ago who was able to buy in, intentionally pure carfentanil through the internet um, and overdose, and the amount of naloxone that they received in treatment was less than four milligrams, which is what comes in the, the nasal atomizer. Um, so again, not to be conspiratorial, but uh, it seems like this is kind of a money grab um, and is a little disappointing. To, to see that happening, but I think this is going to be something that like law enforcement will buy a, a million cases of, of the high dose stuff um, just because they don't want to take any risks. Um, we are seeing though, on the other hand, things like xylazine showing up. And so xylazine is not really Narcan resistant because it's not an opioid. Um, and so it has kind of similar effects to opioids and it can stop people from breathing and people can definitely die. And if you give Narcan, they, they might not have a response. But most of the time, what we're seeing is this is mixed with fentanyl still. Um, and this it's a big problem that it's even showing up in the first place. I, I wish we had better policies so xylazine wasn't there. 
but giving Narcan will still reverse the fentanyl portion and, I mean, give someone at least a better chance at, at surviving it, at not dying from an overdose. Um, so the Narcan resistance discussion always feels like someone's asking whether they should even bother giving Narcan anymore, and you should always bother. That's at least my takeaway. Yeah. And I think that's an important point is that the, the Narcan does its part, but the xylazine, again, it's just a whole different molecule. It's, you know, trying to put out a fire with, like, I don't know, oxygen or something, essentially. Um, it doesn't work. It doesn't work on there. So Yeah. One of the questions we got from Twitter was explanation, talking a little bit about buprenorphine and naloxone, and then so Suboxone or, or its products, as it's more commonly known. And then why why is it harder to use that what what makes fentanyl harder Blah. what about fentanyl makes that a bit harder to use suboxone products in treating it okay that's a really good question um so suboxone which the active ingredient is buprenorphine um so buprenorphine is like one of the gold standard treatments for opioid use disorder or opioid addiction it is one of the two best medicines that we have and honestly, one of the most effective therapies in all of medicine, um, but certainly in treating kind of people who want to stop using opioids and even just in treating withdrawal symptoms. Um, since fentanyl came around, it has been a lot harder to start people on this medicine. And the reason it's hard in the first place for, for any reason is that buprenorphine, even though it is an opioid, it'll sit on the opioid receptors, which is how it works. Um, it is a partial agonist, so it has kind of a, a ceiling effect. It isn't going to give people an overdose the way like fentanyl or heroin would. Um, but if someone has another opioid in their system, it actually functions as an antagonist like naloxone. Um, so if someone is like a, acutely overdosing, you could actually give them buprenorphine to get them to start breathing and wake up again. Um, but what this means in kind of clinical practice is that people will get sick. They will get withdrawal symptoms if you give it too soon. And I don't think anyone has an exact answer for why it has been so much harder to start in this like new age of fentanyl. Um, and there's a lot of theories, but people will go days without using um, and still get very sick when the buprenorphine is initiated. And it used to be with heroin, you could stop using, I mean, for probably like six hours, but 24 hours, you could definitely start someone on this medicine, and then they're kind of in the clear, they're going to feel much better. They've got, got a strategy here. Um, but yeah, so fentanyl, I mean, it's very lipophilic, it deposits in kind of all of your tissues, but particularly any fatty tissues. Um, and so you can build up big stores of it in your body. Uh, and so people who are obviously not like fentanyl intoxicated, not having fentanyl effects, uh, can still get withdrawal symptoms. And I, it doesn't make sense to me fully, but it's definitely a, a real thing that I've seen and had to deal with a lot. But I think the good thing about this is that it has made us address um, our treatment model a little better because waiting for someone to go into withdrawal and be miserable was probably never a good thing to do anyway. Um, and so doing things like microdose induction protocols now um, just prevent the whole phenomenon of opioid withdrawal, which is a big reason that people will fail therapy and, and go back out and use again. Um, and there's, I mean, people are trying macro dosing protocols. There's a lot of a lot of new and cool and exciting kind of treatment options that are coming out of this. So I hope at the end of the day, there will be some good here. 
Yeah, I think it's something where people have been doing, you know, I've been doing buprenorphine for however many years now. It's it's something that we're definitely seeing people are a little bit trickier, but it's it's still, again, the gold standard. It is a miracle drug. Um, and kind of with that next kind of thing, I know we were talking about Xing the X. So, you know, buprenorphine used to have what's called an X waiver. You had to go through a eight hour training and get a special license through DEA in order to prescribe it. Talk to us a little bit about why that was, why there was all this extra hoops that was necessary to kind of get that. And then also the benefit of getting rid of it now. So the X waiver process was actually initiated back in 2000. Congress actually wanted to make buprenorphine available, more available, more accessible for treatment of addiction, because up to that point, it was not approved for that. Um, and like I said, we have that law on the books that you medically, it, it is illegal to medically treat addiction other than these two carve outs. Um, and so the data 2000 drug addiction and treatment act, um, which went into effect in 2002 allowed people for the first time to prescribe this drug. Um, but as part of it, they mandated this eight hour training for physicians and 24 hour training for anybody else to be able to prescribe this. And it used to even be in person. I mean, thankfully over time it became like zoom training and not that the training is bad. I, I actually learned a lot from that training and, still reference it to this day. Um, but that barrier alone, I mean, having someone pay probably out of pocket or spend an entire day of their free time um, to be able to just prescribe this one drug uh, was enough to stop people from caring about doing it. And um, it was less than like 10% of eligible prescribers actually had a waiver. And then of the people who had it, I mean, a, a much smaller number were actually using it. So getting rid of that hopefully allows I mean, it, not hopefully, it does allow everyone to be able to prescribe, but hopefully more people actually will do that. That is kind of what's yet to be seen, whether the people who had excuses to not do it before uh, will actually start prescribing now, and I hope they do. Yeah, I had to give a talk to our docs recently about this, about being like, hey, just, you know, we're not telling you to prescribe Suboxone, we're not telling you to, you know, do it, but like, at least be able to be comfortable enough, know what to do instead of just kind of like seeing it and, and throwing your hands up in the air being like, what, what the hell is this and how do I deal with this kind of thing? So good. Where do you see another kind of question we got was from, this from Sam Lies on Twitter was, you'd referenced it a little bit before. So heroin being, be able to get that at the pharmacy prescription heroin in Canada, that's legal. Do you see, I mean, what would it take for that to happen over here in the States? Like, do you see that in your lifetime and, and how do we get there? Honestly, not now. Um, I don't, I mean, it's something that we all should try for and I don't want to sound like fatalistic or, or really nihilistic here, but um, the, the United States is so far behind in these areas. And this is something that around the world in many other countries that have actually addressed this problem do not have anywhere near the same kind of issues that we are having you can very effectively uh, let people, because uh, not everyone wants to like get onto Suboxone, not everyone wants to stop using heroin, um, but if you give it to them like through a pharmacy, and they're actually getting pure medical grade heroin rather than xylazine and cart fentanyl and, and whatever on the street, 
um, then A, they're less likely to overdose. So they're more likely to be alive, uh, which has tremendous benefits to all of society. Um, but it also, I mean, reduces the risk of kind of like bloodborne pathogens through people using like shared, shared dirty needles, um, skin and soft tissue infections. I mean, even just being able to kind of freely dispense syringes would make a big difference. And that is something that the United States can't do. And so, I mean, the hospitals are full of people with like endocarditis, um, all of these horrible infections, just because we don't want to make syringes available. Um, so I am very skeptical of that, but it is a real thing. They do it in Canada and the UK and in other parts of Europe. Um, and it's, it's very successful. I mean, I think there are actually places that dispense fentanyl to people who want to use it. Um, and as a, a manner of harm reduction, I mean, this has, whether you support someone's right uh, to do what they want with their body and to use drugs or not, I mean, this has a big cost benefits. Um, I mean, it reduces crime. For all the people clamoring for us to drone strike the cartels in Mexico, I mean, you could put the cartels out of business overnight if you could buy uh, legal and regulated drugs. Yeah. And then, you know, we drone strike them, but that, you know, everybody who's relying on that supply the next day, you know, we saw this during COVID was, you know, what's, what's the reason that liquor stores were an essential business is because we needed to make sure that people didn't go to alcohol withdrawal and fill up the ICUs. Cause that's what happens to people in alcohol withdrawal, right? They, they go to the ICU to keep them out of uh, the hospital during COVID time, we needed those ICU beds. So the same thing would happen if we, you know, that that's a method of harm reduction, right? We, we talk about alcohol and that's, that's a method of harm reduction. Bars are harm reduction, right? Cause those are supervised consumption sites. So when we hear these kind of like opposition, it's like we're using harm reduction each and every day, but we're just not even recognizing it or looking at it that way. Yeah, and harm reduction, for whatever reason, is so controversial when it comes to, like, substance and drug topics, but most of adult medicine is harm reduction. Um, like, we give people oxygen after they've smoked for years and, and have lung disease. Um, we put people on statins and beta blockers and stuff after they have a heart attack, and you're not regrowing the, the dead myocardium um, from that heart attack, but you're just reducing someone's, like, risk of having another event or suffering or, or having any sort of bad thing happen, which I think should kind of be like the driving principle of what we do. We want to reduce harms. Um, I don't know how that is ever controversial because the opposite is allowing unnecessary harms. Yeah. One of the other questions we got, Melissa Gentry asked about the role of the DEA in the Adderall shortage and then of course, there's everything that comes along with counterfeiting, counterfeiting Adderall and everything, you know, kind of dovetails a bit into the discussion that we had a little bit too. So talk about that a little bit. So this is interesting. And I think kind of setting up the fact that the DEA has no medical component, they don't even recognize kind of like basic science, like chemistry and physics, um, to know that the DEA is the body that sets limits on medications. And so certainly or specifically, I mean, controlled substances, the DEA not only designates who is allowed to make them, but they set quotas. Um, and so the amount that can be produced by each allowed manufacturer. And they set this a year in advance. 
Um, a lot of times, I mean, it is based on kind of prescribing and use rates. And so it's supposed to be kind of a, a fail safe method, you would think on like a superficial level, but they have the discretion at the end of the day to set whatever they want. And so when it comes to Adderall, we've seen ADHD diagnoses go up tremendously over a, a, quite a while, um, which is a, a good thing because ADHD is something that probably still quite underdiagnosed. I think most people don't actually believe that it's like as significant of an issue, but uh, it shortens people's life expectancy. It, it kills people. Um, and so those prescriptions have gone up and I'm not going to try to pretend that there weren't problems out there. There's always going to be someone who tries to like capitalize on a controlled substance or something that people are trying to obtain. And so there were some like apps that abused uh, the loopholes that were, were put forth in COVID for prescribing controlled substances that may have been kind of bad actors in, in the space. But that is kind of an uh, outlier and a very small percentage of prescriptions. Um, but so the DEA does not believe that the number of prescriptions that are being written are legitimate. And so in 2021, they set a lower prescription quota for 2022 for Adderall. Um, because they did not believe that those numbers were legitimate, even though they have no medical background capabilities. Um, in 2022, one of the few select manufacturers who was allowed to make Adderall was unable to get the precursor supplies. And I don't know exactly the details of what went into that. Um, but for whatever reason, this, this problem is ongoing because of kind of supply chain manufacturer issues. And so the DEA is blaming the manufacturers for not being able to get the supplies to produce this medicine. However, the DEA could allow the other manufacturers to pick up the slack. They could increase the quota. They could allow another pharmaceutical company to manufacture Adderall. Um, and they have chosen not to do that. And so, I mean, this has been going on since, I don't know, when did I first start hearing the Adderall shortage? Yeah, it was like August. Summer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Back to school. And, yeah there's like no end in sight at this point. And so that is kind of disappointing to me um, because it is something that they could just stop anytime they wanted to. Uh, and not that like it's their responsibility to help out the, these poor pharmaceutical companies. I'm, I'm not saying that, but this is something that is affecting millions of Americans is creating shortages of other medications. Um, I mean, is affecting people's functioning, affecting kids uh, learning all of that stuff. Um, so it is kind of bizarre that there's no attempt made by DEA to address this in any meaningful way because it would help millions of Americans if they would. Um, so that does really bother me about the DEA. Yeah, I, you know, part of, you know, majority of my job is working with teens, adolescents and kids. And when I'm doing a lot of the ADHD stuff, I'm kind of like, I wish I could prescribe something for you that you're going to be able to pick up from the pharmacy. That's going to be your evidence-based number one choice for how we treat this ADHD that's there. And it becomes this whole, you know, I'm spending however much extra hours in my, in my week trying to like resend Adderall prescriptions essentially, or Concerta or Focalin or Vyvanse to chasing pharmacies just because nobody can get it. So. Yeah. And I think people also tend to believe that like, Adderall, because it's an amphetamine, these, these medications are stimulants that they're somehow like a bad stimulant. It's like people using methamphetamine, which honestly, 
you shouldn't care if someone wants to use methamphetamine, like live your life. But uh, it, it does, it's surprising to me because they are like one of the most evidence-based things that we do. Stimulants for ADHD is like it, the most evidence in medicine. Um, 90%, like, yeah. Yeah, 90%. I'm like hard pressed to think of anything else that has been studied and so effective. Um, and we're also have been seeing before this and pro probably unrelated, I don't want to pretend that there's a connection here, but seeing increasing rates of those illicit stimulants. And so like cocaine, methamphetamine are on the rise and all the attention on the opioid problem kind of forgets the fact that we have a lot of other drugs in this country. Um, and so it's hard for me not to wonder if maybe the DEA is trying to create a new situation where they need to step in and, and do something. There's now going to be a, a stimulant crisis. Um, and so, I mean, cutting millions of people off of their prescribed stimulants seems uh, eerily similar to when millions of people were cut off of their chronic opioids um, and turned to street drugs and had very bad outcomes from that as well. End of the day, got to follow the money, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Last question we'll do is, so is Dr. David Gentry, or Dr. Sorry, Dr. David Clements goes, how do you envision a positive working relationship between DEA or other organizations and docs or people like us? I would love for there to be a positive relationship. I mean, I think the DEA needs to bring in medical professionals. They need to listen to medical science. It's disturbing that they deny evidence they deny facts, they deny medical science, and then set medical policy. Um, I mean, I think that that doesn't make sense to me. That shouldn't shouldn't be allowed. Um, so, I mean, I think if they really wanted to make meaningful change, like they have billions of dollars, they could hire someone. I'm, they could hire me. I would gladly go give them free advice um, or paid advice. But yeah, this <laughs> this paid, paid. this isn't hard. Um, I think the onus is kind of on law enforcement at this point to listen. Um, and I mean, the same thing for these like fentanyl exposure stories, the, the facts are very easy to search. Uh, a quick Google search can give you kind of all the information, the science behind it, why that's not a real risk. But for whatever reason, there's no motivation to even put in the most minimal effort to try here. Um, and it's really disappointing because it's, it's the difference between like, a hundred thousand people dying a year and not. On that note, how do you, I always ask everybody as a parting kind of question, cause I got to see patients in a few minutes and then I'm sure respecting your time and we could talk drugs all day. So I'm gonna have to ask you to come back and, and for yeah. that discussion. Um, but what, you know, your, your personality on Twitter, you get a lot of flack from people and haters because you correct a lot of mistruths, right? You get out there and you say things. How do you kind of separate yourself from that and, and kind of also your own kind of self-care? Because that's what we always need at the end of the day, self-care. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is something that comes up a lot. Um, like, I don't care what people on Twitter say for the most part. That is... Sound, probably sounds stupid um, and sounds like really trite, but after years of, of that, it, like it, it's not real life for the most part. Um, and so I don't know, that's probably not like an easy thing to do, <laughs> but uh, yeah, people get really annoyed. They, they think that I'm like 
defending I'm pro fentanyl all of that stuff but at the end of the day like I am just kind of sticking to the facts I I try not to say things that I can't actually back up um and so like if that bothers somebody that's really on them um I, I don't lose sleep over people being mad that I presented them with facts I don't know that if works. I answered the question <laughs> no no I think it was Jay-Z, some Jay-Z song was like women lie men lie numbers don't lie facts don't lie right <laughs> so that's well, that's what it comes down to you, you put I've out got, your stuff yeah i've got 99 problems but twitter isn't one <laughs> well that that's there's no better way to end this than that so, um dr marino ryan thank you so much um i hope we're people who are listening were able to learn something learn some truths versus whatever is being put out there so thank you again for your time yeah this was awesome i would love to do it again yeah, we'll make sure we'll get some other stuff. Maybe we'll talk about benzos some other time or something Ooh. like that. So that's a fun one. So. Yeah.